Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. Thank you everyone for joining the Home Education Matters podcast. Today we are joined by Lynn, otherwise known as the West London History Tutor, who is an expert in all things history at secondary level. So hello, Lynn. Thank you for joining us. Uh, You're most welcome. Thank you for inviting me along. So yeah, I'm Lynn from West London History Tutor. I am a trained history teacher at secondary level for ages 11 to 18. Um, I've left full-time education to set up my tutoring business and I tutor students who are home educated at Kiso 3 and GCSE but also help students who are still in mainstream education. I've been a teacher for a very long time, since 1995, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. and was the head of humanities for 17 years at in, in school in West London. So, yeah. What prompted you to leave school and go into tutoring? Oh, well, I wanted a career break. I was on an unpaid sabbatical for a year and my husband and I were thinking of actually going traveling around the world. Um, And we were thinking of Australia and New Zealand. And then they had those terrible, awful fires, didn't they? And then January 2020. So we went, oops, maybe not. Maybe we'll go closer to home. Uh, And then COVID hit. And the school asked me to make a decision about whether I wanted to go back full time. And I was already in that point of career break, getting career advice. And I decided not to. And I had set up the business basically to keep my hand in teaching because I love teaching and I love history. Mm. So I wanted to continue my skills and I'd already set the business up. So I just expanded it, really. Really Uh, nice. There seems to be an influx in of new tutors at the moment. And I think it's a really positive thing because it allows so much more diversity for learning at home. And obviously, what I always say with all these podcasts is as a home educator, there's obviously no need at all to use tutors. That's something that's just a personal preference. But it can be quite a time effective and cost effective way to sort of have a consolidated learning experience Mm. for your child. And it's also very helpful, I think, when you've got exams coming up because tutors are very good at knowing the specs and things like that. Today, Lynn is going to be giving us her top tips for approaching history at home for secondary age children. So this is basically sort of 10 plus, really, I'm thinking. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm obviously a specialised at 11 to 18 and I'm coming at it as a history specialist. So as a history specialist, these are the sort of things that I would address in the home education. So for the first thing is, if you are doing a series of history lessons, is have an overall sort of concept or inquiry question uh, to drive that history. I really think that's quite important. It helps it to hang together to know what your purpose is in teaching these history lessons. So thinking about for example when I taught the Romans into year sevens it was like a bridging unit between junior school and high school my key overall question um, was about well why did the Roman Empire collapse why are we still not part of the Roman Empire today Uh, (laughs) and obviously to do that I had to look at the start of the Roman Empire how it developed from the Roman Republic and and the growth of it and you know we did map work looking at how it had expanded over time what factors led to the Roman Empire being able to grow to then be able to see why it collapsed And so the idea, I think, is if you are actually having a history scheme of work, if you will, is have an override. What's the purpose of it? What is it that you're trying to address? Does it matter what the overarching question is? I mean, for example, for the Roman Empire, could you go for something like, was the Roman Empire the heart of, you know, our most civilized moment in human history or something like that? Yeah, but but again, you can have any question. It's mm. just what, what, in a sense, it's like, why are you teaching this? Why are you exploring that? What are you actually trying to understand? 
in a sense, it's about the second order concepts in history because that history is it's multifaceted. You've got basically the the story. Uh, the narration of what happened or what we believe has happened. You have the skill set of being a historian, looking at sources and being able to analyze and evaluate them, looking at historical interpretations and understanding them, but also having that ability to go, well, why did that event happen? What were the consequences of that event? How similar is that event to this event in a different time period? What's changed over time? What's stayed the same over the time? Why have things changed? So you're actually looking at it far more almost scientifically, you know, looking at the evidence and trying to analyze it and trying to evaluate it. And that to me is what history is about uh, as a historian. So is it something like what the story is, who told yeah. the story and why it's important? Is that the sort of the yeah, generally it, what you're... Mm. Yes. I mean, um, you're looking at the causes events, the consequences of the events, but also the significance of the events. Um, you know, why are they important? Is this particular event in history a turning point? Did it have a massive impact on the things that then came after it? Or is it not that important? And also the fact that historians disagree on mm. those turning points or what might be the causes of World War One or the causes of World War Two. Historians don't agree on the past they might agree okay yes world war one started in 1914 but they would disagree about why it was uh, caused or what is the the greatest uh, most important reason why it happened so history is about a debate as well it's not just about the facts it's about looking at those facts and interpreting those facts by looking at the sources at the time the primary sources that were the, um, written at the time or created at the time but also um, looking at other historians' analysis of those events, their interpretations of the past. So mm. it, it's it. There is so much more than just storytelling. If you say, if you see what I mean, just knowing about Elizabeth I and what yeah. she did. It's about That's interesting. Why, why did she do it? What were the one, impacts of what she did? I mean, one of my questions was going to be: What is the sort of balance between the factual knowledge and? having an understanding of the context and the importance of it, you know, mm. that, as you say, that kind of sort of more critical analysis of yeah. the facts. What is what is the sort of ratio there for, for GCSE, for example? You know, what's the most important mm. focus? Well, to be honest, they, they depending on the exam board, because uh, there are multiple exam boards, and depending on which paper it is, it, it depends on how much weight they give to either the knowledge or the skill. However, the skill has to be demonstrated by using the knowledge. If you don't have the knowledge there to demonstrate mm. your ability to explain why something happened or explain the consequences of a particular event or to explain how useful a source is to a historian studying a particular topic, if you don't have it backed up by factual knowledge, then you're not actually proving that skill because you don't mm. have the knowledge of the historian. When my son was studying mm. history, we, we used the P-E-E-L approach, mm. which is, I think, point, evidence, explain, and then link it to the answer. Yeah. And it was very dull, frankly, and a little mm. formulaic, but it it does, I think, encapsulate what you're saying, yeah. that you need, you need to understand what you're being asked, provide some sort of factual evidence. I always used to say that the evidence bit, 
invariably needed a sort of number or a capital letter so you know like a place a person or a number or some sort of stat yeah Yeah, you need to kind of explain as well how that actually links to what you're trying to say there is a growth of resources and teachers are very much involved in continual professional development and I use um, education on 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 Twitter for example and there is a move away from the PEE P-E-E-E-L. Um, and we are becoming far more in, t- in terms of teaching the actual English, if you will, and how to write fluidly, but not with a straitjacket of P-E-E or P-E-E-L can uh, feel like. And we're trying to teach children, for example, a lot adverbials and how to structure sentence just even using this because, but so, you know, just to, to sort of um, develop their English skills and their skills of communicating, which is so important in history. And you're absolutely right. We talk about you have to present evidence and evidence often can be based around the five W questions. You know, what happened? When did it happen? Who was there? Where? And maybe a why. But it's about it's not just about doing a knowledge dump going, here, I know all of this. Dump. Mm. <laughs> you actually have to use the evidence that you've presented to then answer the question. So if it's a causation, well, how did that evidence make the event happen? If it's a consequence question, you know, what is the consequence? Well, how did you get from those events to that consequence? You have to show the connections this led to, this meant that, therefore, thus, as a result of. So language is incredibly important, structure is important, but it doesn't have to be a, the straitjacket of P-E-E-L or P-E-E, um, but it's whatever works for the child basically okay you have to uh, teach a variety of methods and it's what works for the child I think that's a really valid point because I think some children perhaps you covered it from a more scientific perspective they quite like that quite regimented approach Mm. where they know they need to put their facts in but also link it whereas whereas other children I think who are perhaps more humanities based they like the more discussional sort of discursive Mm. side I think of history yeah and, and that is history. History is about competing um, and often conflicting interpretations of the past, you know, how we perceive things and why historians disagree about certain events in the past. And and it is about that evaluation, that weighing up of two different arguments. And that some of the essays on the GCSEs and, and on the A-levels are about that, looking at the debate, looking at, well, on this side, some people say this factor was most important, this cause or this event, but others will interpret it as this side or this event is more important. But it's about how how far you can convince me what you believe is the most important. And that's basically using the evidence to present your case and to try and prove why it's the most important or the most significant. How much is personal opinion important? Because I used to teach religious studies and I used to mark it as an examiner. And you used to get marked down if you didn't give a personal opinion. It was very important for some questions. Is that the same for history or or is it not not so vital? In a sense, the argumentative essays. Um, So if I give an example, it's it's probably easier. Example, at Excel, um, there are questions, how far do you agree? And they give a quotation. For example, that the uh, the English one defeated the Spanish Armada because of their superior naval ability. And they say, how far do you agree with that statement? So they're clearly having to show their opinion. It is an opinion-based essay. However, it can't just be, I think that's true. They've got to mm. marshal the facts to prove it. And they have to show that it is a debate that other people will say, actually, it was the bad weather 
that was on the side of the English. We were very fortunate with the storms, um, blew the Spanish Armada to the north uh, and helped when they we used the fire ships, for example, when they're in the port of Calais. So they can present their own opinion, but if it's not backed up with evidence and analysis, the yeah. opinion, in a sense, doesn't count. That's, that moves me on to another question that I think is probably one that is the first thing that people, home educators, think about when they start considering mm. history mm-hmm. GCSE, yeah. which is which exam board to go with. Because my son did Cambridge, and I really regret that and wish he'd done AQA, but just because it's a lot more straightforward exam. But we wanted to do Cambridge because it was the only one that was completely 20th century, and he wasn't particularly interested in anything before that. And yet, it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult decision to make, isn't it? Which mm, example mm, to go with? Because yeah. they're all slightly different. Sort of, they all have different focuses. Yeah. Well, there is obviously the national exam boards, which um, state schools here in Britain have to do, and they are the regular GCSEs. You also have you talk about Cambridge. That's the international GCSE, which have have a bit more flexibility. The national GCSEs, so AQA, Edexcel, OCR, and, and there's a Welsh board as well, to apologise, can't remember the name of it. The ones that are done within the state schools, mainstream schools, um, they are under quite a lot of control from Ofqual, and they have to do, for example, a study that um, is a thousand years in length. So wow. they've, and this is from since the Gove um, changes brought in when Gove was the Secretary of State for Education, and because they were, they found that some of the exam boards were just concentrating on the 20th century, and they didn't like that. And and and, and there is a valid, you know, there is some validity to that because it is quite a narrow period of time. There's a lot more history than just the 20th century. So they all have to do a thousand year study. So for example, with Edexcel, their paper one is their. Um, study across time there's medicine through time crime and punishment through time warfare through time and migration through time and and they've and that aqa is the same and so is ocr and what we've done what they've done for those units is is looking at change and continuity over time because you've got that breadth you've got a, a, a thousand years you can see patterns of change and patterns of continuity and why it's happened and what the consequences were so they all will have that they all have to have a British unit. You have to teach British uh, history. And there's a variety. So you could have Elizabethan, you could have the Norman Conquest and afterwards, or um, Henry VIII, etc. There are British units. And they all must teach interpretations as well as sources. So the, the, they have to look at primary sources uh, and look at you know what they can infer from them, the usefulness of them. But they also have to look at uh, interpretations and interpretations are often taken as something produced by a historian after the event. Are they all open to home educators now or do any of them have a coursework option? Gove got rid of coursework. So there's no coursework component with no, um, history all- GCSEs? Not national, but not the not the not in mainstream school. No, they got rid of the coursework. Um, it's all exam based. Nice. The international GCSEs, I mean, they were always the go-to because they didn't have a coursework component. But now I'm guessing you perhaps choose those because they have a more international feel. The international GCSEs are, I mean, Edexcel does one, CIE obviously has one. They, they all of the, the national GCSEs and the international GCSEs are all international. So, for example, in the Edexcel, you could pick a, a China module, a Russia module, uh, the Middle East. So all of them um, have 
world history in them. It depends on what units you choose to do. So do in they that all point, have? Do the do the international GCSEs all have an obligatory British unit of study? Uh, no, not from my knowledge. What they okay. do they Good do do is that they have a a similar idea as one is done in depth, one mm. and one is more of a breadth. But I don't think off the top of my head that they have mm. the thousand year rule. Is there a particular example that you think is maybe the simplest or the most straightforward? <laughs> it really depends on the child. So I'm I've taught Edexcel for many many years, and I've tutored in all the other boards. Um, Edexcel, I find students find easier in the sense because the the, the question stems are are static. So you know, for paper one, the first question will be describe two features of. Mm, you know, mm. the second question to A will be how useful are sources A and B for. So the question stems are static. So you, so you know can what... learn how to answer that particular style of question. Yeah, it's easier. And some of the other exam boards are, are fairly similar. They will have similar stems. But for example, Edexcel has four units. So they have three exam papers, of which two units are examined on one paper. And AQA have just two papers from what I remember but they examine two units on each so it, it, it depends on the child and it depends what the child's strengths are and their interests are because it also depends on the units they would like to study because there are some differences between the exam boards as to what they offer and what they don't offer. So with the thousand year span does that mean that in the exam anything within that thousand years could they would they may have to answer a question on or can they they have to study it but they can specialize down for the exam uh you have to study all of it wow so you don't you don't know where the you don't know um what might come up and the questions are done so so for example it's a thematic study so for example with crime and punishment which i've taught the first bit is um the middle ages and you look at the nature of crime as in what was defined as a crime how did we then catch the criminals? How did we then put them on the trial? And what sort of punishments were, they were? And those four themes follow throughout the, the four time periods. But a question could be asked and it could straddle two time periods. It might mm. ask, it, there are deliberately questions, so, you know, how was, uh, how, what was the role of the community in catching criminals in the Middle Ages? And, and how is that different to the modern period? So mm. there are, it will deliver, because it's about change and continuity, you have to have that broad picture to be able to spot those patterns. So I'm guessing that for these ones that have the thousand year span, as opposed to, say, the Cambridge International, which just is 20th century, I'm guessing they're not expecting you to know things at such great depth as yeah, you would that, for the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. You will need to have uh, examples. Obviously, you can't get away with not being able to support your answer without factual detail but it's not to the le- uh, the level of detail from in the depth study. Yeah, it is a broader sweep. But again, mm. you'd still be- have to marshal, you'd still have to be able to um, get facts to support your answers. So yeah, it is, it is tricky. There are a lot of facts, but that's why it's very important to be teaching revision skills and skills about how to revise and clever ways in which to like record your knowledge, like using Cornell notes or... Um, graphic organizers to sort of help organize that information and make it easier to recall retrieval practice is really important to build that in 
into home learning, especially at GCSE, that you regularly review what you taught previously, uh, especially if it's connected in some shape or form to what you're currently teaching. That's really interesting because I found that with my children, they really like history. And when they're engaged with the history topic, they naturally remember the important things, the dates, Mm -hmm. the stats, because there's some stats that are just, they grab you, don't they? Because they are, you hear a statistic and you're like, wow, I didn't know that. And they tend to remember those. And so I found when my two were studying history, that we didn't do a lot of these kind of graphic organizers and things like that, because if they were engaged, really engaged with the subject, they tended to remember the facts anyway, because they were so sort of bowled over by them mm-hmm. and they were so interested in them. And the other thing I found was that if we came at the subject from many different perspectives, so for example, my two really liked the 20th century. So we listened to lots of podcasts, we got audio books, mm-hmm. we watched an extremely long documentary on YouTube that was something like 42 hours long. Um, we watched yeah, I know it was insane. We watched all, all sorts of things and we yeah. read they read lots of books about it. They read mm. books that weren't yeah. weren't textbooks, just fa- you know, just sort of interesting books, biographies, things like that. And I think because of that, they tended to retain a lot of these facts mm. that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise. So but I'm but that's quite time heavy, isn't it? So I'm yeah. I'm guessing that your tips for learning facts, things like graphic organizers, that's a slightly more efficient use of time, perhaps. Yeah, and again, it's all down to the child in front of you. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? Your children are very good at picking up facts and, and recording them, but other children might struggle. Uh, I, one common thing I hear from a lot of children is, I can't remember my dates. And it's like, well, for you, you need to do a timeline. You need to have a visual big timeline on A3 sheet where you have the key events of this particular topic marked on and maybe dual code it. When, what I mean by dual code it is to have an, a little image, an icon that helps trigger your memory as to what that event is. Uh, so, for example, if you were doing early Elizabethan and you're looking at the plots against her, you, you might have some sort of like a dagger going in her back to remember that's mm-hmm. the plot. That's a plot. <laughs> um, mm. And then these timelines can become living graphs as well. What I mean by living graph is you have the time on the X axis and the Y axis could be like level of threat, for example, to Elizabeth or how, how secure she was. And so you can then plot all the events like the Spanish Armada, the plots against her to assassinate her, the arrival of Mary, Queen of Scots. You can then put it against a zero to 10. How dangerous was it to her? So this timeline becomes more of an analytical tool as well by plotting it as a living graph of how how secure Elizabeth was you can have Venn diagrams you know a great maths tool but when you're looking at similarities and differences between two time periods or two events the Venn diagrams fantastic you know you've got your differences and in your middle you've got um where that things overlap and are similar so mind maps brilliant tool um, for mapping out I do on the Munich Beer Hall Putsch you know have one branch for causes one branch for what happened and one branch for consequences and again use dual coding so little smiley faces little sad faces you know little imagery to help record it and it just then captures the key facts in a visual way and it's great doing and if you're doing a thousand years of history, that's a lot of work. <laughs> that's really, that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. So what I've been doing with the student I'm teaching who's being home educated for this is that I've I've created a lot of structures for her where she has tables, for example. And because it's those three theme, themes, types of crime, how do you catch the criminal? How do we put them on trial? Punishment. I'll have one where it's got middle ages and it's just got key facts. Then the next time period, early modern, 
and then a column how far it's changed or stayed the same. And then when we do early modern to the 18th, 19th century, we have the same table with the facts. And then again, when we move into the, the, the modern period, and that's when those timelines also are great because you could have a thousand year timeline where you plot or just show when did we stop using the hue and cry? When did we stop using the tithings? And you just have it marked on like a line, if you will, showing when it was in use. And, and these these visual graphical organizers are really good for those types of things because it is really hard. I mean, a thousand years of history is a lot. It <laughs> is a lot. lot. It's a lot to remember, isn't it? What role do you think um, keywords plays? Because I know that Huge. when my child was doing, yeah, when my child was doing geography, we actually stopped it because it was, I realized quite early on that it was basically an exercise in memorizing the definition of certain keywords, and that was geography. And the same thing with biology, which was, which is probably our least favorite science for that reason, because it's an awful lot of memorizing the definition of certain keywords. Is keywords a big thing in history? I'd step back from that and say, actually, to be a biologist, you need the language of, you need to be able to speak, talk and think like a biologist. And that requires you to use the academic language mm. because you can't access, you, you can't show your understanding if you don't use the correct terminology. So it's actually a sign of being a biologist. It's a sign of being a geographer. It's a sign of being a historian if you're using the specialist terminology. I think um, that's the problem in my eyes with GCSEs is because because it's the first exam that you tend to get taught all of that kind of keyword stuff, definitions, make sure you're using the right language. But the actual understanding of stuff, that tends to come, I, I found, later with A-level and beyond. And it always seems a shame to me that GCSEs can be quite dry in that way. We, I Again, I look at it in a slightly different <laughs> way. It, it, I'm giving them the tools, the students, the tools to access the primary sources, to access the historian's interpretations, to be able to access a history book that's not a textbook by giving them the tools to be able to decode it. it, it be, so, for example, if you put um, a piece of French text in front of me, I will not have a clue. I'm still, uh, j'habite à Winsford, uh, j'ai 12 ans. I'm still 12. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the tools. What, so, what is the I, way I, to the train station? That kind of thing. Uh, that's way above no, is me. that beyond you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, am, I am so awful at foreign, uh, <laughs> modern foreign languages. I apologise to all the French people out there. Um, <laughs> could you imagine if you put that in front of a child or me, I wouldn't be able to decode it. I wouldn't be able to understand it. So if you put a piece of text or even a documentary in front of a child and they don't understand, say, every 10th word or 5th word or 6th word because you haven't pre-taught the language, it's like a foreign language to them. They're, they're missing so much. Won't they so just pick that up, though, as they go just like we pick up language? No, I think um, educational philosophy about how children learn and how much they get out of it and, and how much they pick up just by reading has actually shifted quite considerably in the last um, 10, 15 years. And there is now an emphasis on you have to give them the tools to equip them to actually understand the text that they're reading and to have that, we call it tier three uh, words, to have the specialist language. Um, so that they can think and talk like a biologist, a historian or a geographer, so that they can get to that deeper understanding. And so I think it is quite important to pre-teach the words. So if, you know, I, if I was teaching a child and I was using a, a particular textbook, I look at the textbook and go through and think, right, which, which words here 
might be a bit tricky and I need to pre-explain beforehand which ones are actually tier three. So they're the specialist terminologies that term, terms that historians tend to use. And it's not in your everyday conversation. You know, you're not going to just drop in the word uh, it, the Reformation in normal everyday chat. So, you know, to help that child access and to understand, you do need to pre-teach. It doesn't have to be a big thing. All I have with the students I teach is that here's the keyword, here's the definition, here's an image to help remember mm. it. It's that dual coding. And then when we look at the text, because often I like give the information, you know, I might get be getting them to do Cornell notes. So I have it pre-typed in the Google Docs. I highlight that word or I, I always have the keywords in bold in blue. And then they can refer back to the glossary. And then I just quiz them. And then I ask them when they're doing their writing or the talking about it to use the correct terminology. I'm guessing exam boards as well are looking for these uh, keywords and that or what you called third tier yeah 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 tier three words I'm guessing they're uh, looking for that they do because it's that thing of if you have the correct knowledge of the time period you should be using this language so for example I use the word example of um, reformation now if you're talking about Henry's break with Rome and you never use the word reformation do you actually truly understand that time period are you actually showing your depth of understanding and knowledge Um, maybe you just don't know what it's called though but you would completely understand it uh, yeah, I can see where you're coming from, but it is it is that element of it, sh- it because the word itself transmits so much in that context. Mm. It saves you having to explain it. Like yeah, it sums it, it up nicely when you're writing it lots. It sums it up. You don't have to go when Henry broke with the Catholic mm. Church and mm. installed his own church and called himself the head of um, the Church of England, <laughs> and the Pope wasn't. You could have just used the word Reformation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it it becomes a powerful tool of explanation and understanding. And yes, they do. All of the exam boards, the national exam boards, um, have marks for SPAG, spelling, punctuation and grammar, again, brought in by Gove. Thank you, Gove. Is that just for some questions or is that for the whole paper? It's for the longer questions. So it's Mm -hmm. for Edexcel, for example, it's the 16 markers become 20 markers because there's four marks for for spelling, punctuation and grammar. And they will expect the use of the tier three language, the historian's language in that. So if you're talking... So is that marked as SPAG, is it? It's marked at SPAG, four marks. Um, so the marks that you would get for keywords, that's part of the four marks for SPAG? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, okay. So it's using the words correctly, spelling them correctly and using them in the right context. So, for example, on the paper three at Excel, I, used, I teach the Weimar Nights of Germany. So if it's a question on uh, about the Nazis treatment of ethnic minorities and you use Aryan, you're using that correctly, or you use the German uh, version and to mention subhumans. Mm. So it's using the language within the context correctly. Mm, It's frustrating for me. My daughter is dyslexic and she knows all the words, but she's not very good at spelling them. So she would definitely know all of those kind of third tier, three tier. I keep forgetting what you call them. Sorry. Third tier. It's 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 yeah. It's 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 easy way. Is are you thinking talking uh, uh, like? the historian or geographer Mm. or biologists in other words using the specialist terms yeah I mean she's good with the specialist terms but she wouldn't be able to spell them particularly the German words and I find it very frustrating that she would lose marks because of that well so this is (laughs) or not gain marks yeah this is what teachers have raised with the exam boards but obviously exam Mm. boards gain or beholden to Ofqual 
So obviously, if a child has a special educational need and that has been assessed and acknowledged and they have a, a plan in place for support in Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4, that then gets notified to the exam board. And they obviously, for, depending on the level of need, they can get 25% extra time doesn't in, help with spelling though does it no, they can also get but they can also have a scribe or they mm. can also um type but obviously with yeah. typing the the functionality of autocorrect has mm. to be disabled exactly what happens in the marking i'm not 100% certain but i think they do they they give allowances for that and obviously it's four marks and then 16 marks is actually on the, mm. the essay, the content itself. So that's, and it's not on every exam paper. So, you know, it's only on two of the, for example, it's only on two of the four exam papers that um, Edexcel has. Okay, that's that's useful to know then. Do you have, talking about the long essay questions, do you have any tips for how to approach those? Absolutely. I'm a massive, massive fan of highlighters and I'll explain why so obviously a question that is a long uh, 60 marker or 20 marker especially when you get to a level could be 25 what is a question actually asking you so the first job is to look at the question look at what the command words are is it assess is it evaluate is it explain is it a how far do you agree with the point of view get your highlighter and highlight the command words then highlight the focus of the question so for example i did one earlier that i mentioned about a point of view the spanish Armada was defeated because of the english naval tactics so it's about the defeat it's about what caused the defeat of the spanish armada and immediately then you start you need to start to think what is my answer and a little plan in exam conditions a little plan is necessary if you're doing it at home and you have more time i think the biggest thing is is discussing it first the oral rehearsal is really mm. important because it helps marshal mm. your thoughts gets you at your thinking hat on you need to just think things through so a plan is important um, if it's just explain why something, you know, explain why the Spanish uh, Armada was defeated, you think, well, why was it defeated? What caused it? What led to them being defeated? So you have to then think, what are the reasons? Once you've got your reasons or your factors, whatever it is that you're going to discuss, you then need to organize it. And paragraphing is, re is really important. So if I go with the uh, example of explain why the Spanish Armada was defeated, your first paragraph could be about the bad weather, for example. Mm. So one reason why the Spanish Armada was defeated was because, state the course, bad weather. So what, one reason per paragraph? It is, yeah. It, I would yeah. say at GCSE level or 11 to 13, one course per paragraph, mm. and then build up to make more complex essays. You know, it, it depends where the child is. All of this is like, where is your child? What skills do they have? What are they able to do? And where mm. you're wanting to push them to be. So, you know, you, you've got to start at a certain level and, and and grow. So, yeah, one one course per paragraph. Use the words of the question to formulate your first starter sentence, the point of the paragraph. So if the question was explain why the Spanish Armada was defeated, one reason why the Spanish Armada was defeated was because. Mm. The reason I say that is that sometimes people just start telling me the story of the Spanish Armada and they're not actually answering the question asked. By using the words of the question, you are more likely to focus and stay on target. You know, it's also helpful target. for the examiner as well, isn't it? Because yeah. I know I examined Edexcel papers and you don't have a lot of time. And yeah. so you do tend to, to look out yeah. for these kind of obvious yeah. points that people make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
exactly. And then obviously you then support that. So with the example I'm giving, the bad weather. So you talk about where did the bad weather make a difference? And then you have to prove how it helped the English defeat the, the Spanish Armada. So the example would be when the wind was blowing in the correct direction, that we were able to, our fire ships were able to float in the right direction to where the Spanish were um, anchored off Calais, in the harbour of Calais. If the weather hadn't been in our, the wind hadn't been in our direction, we wouldn't have been able to do that. And then mm. th- what happened next wouldn't have occurred. The Spanish panicked. They cut their anchors. Some of the boats collided. And then they w- went out into the channel and they were blown in all different directions and they didn't maintain their formation. That really helped us. That helped the English. So you're having to show what difference it made. So that's the explanation. That's the analysis. What what did it? What difference did it make? And um, should that explanation be in the same paragraph as the point you're making? Yes. So mm-hmm. that's why that P structure has become quite a thing in history. And uh, But some historians and history teachers now want to move away from it because it can mm. feel a bit of a straitjacket. But mm. you still have, you need in a, in a paragraph, what is your point? What are you talking about? Evidence to support it and explanation of analysis of what difference did it make? And, and it could be, and then I get students to, I get children to actually color code it. So wherever they've put their reason or their factor, that's in one color. Anything that's factual evidence is in a second color, where they're starting to use that evidence to explain why the event happened or what the consequences were, they then put in another color. Mm. And that's where language becomes important. You know, you have to show why, how it made a difference. So you need phrases like this led to, this meant that, as a result of this, consequently, um, therefore, thus, and that language helps to show that you're actually now using that evidence to explain. Yeah, and it also helps your your brain, doesn't it, to sort of think, yeah. okay, now I'm moving on to this bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I say, <laughs> I say to the home educated students that I'm teaching, it's like, I want your paragraph to look multicolored. I want it to look beautiful. I want mm-hmm. to look, and you don't have to have like point evidence explanation. It could go point evidence explain more evidence explain mm. more evidence explain i said it could be look like those you know those cakes that you cook cut into that are layered <laughs> rainbow cakes all, rainbow cakes that's it it's like a <laughs> rainbow cake and that's and that's how you, you you can move between your evidence and explanation then and then go additionally mm. also um that's that really be, nice because yeah. i think a lot of uh, one thing that my son found very frustrating was that he he wanted to when he got on a roll he wanted to go oh and also this and this mm. and also this and and he he got frustrated that when he was doing it three four years ago it was very much no this is your point and your evidence and your explanation now move on to your next one but that's the the unfortunate part of the fact of the time constraints of mm. in exams, and that's oh, that's how children are assessed, and it doesn't allow for that. That I suppose, in a sense, comes in at A level where they do have a non non examined uh, assessment, which is the coursework, and also at degree level where you have a dissertation where you have a greater word count and time to be able to then explore something in more detail but unfortunately with the with these short answer questions being even at mm. a level uh, for edexcel the 20 mark questions are about 45 minutes that's all you have on it so realistically you have a good introduction that sets it up it's like your gps on your car you this is the directions we're going this is where my end point is you know hello i'm introducing the essay you might get three maybe four substantial paragraphs and then a really good evaluative conclusion where you are weighing up all the different arguments and a really sophisticated answer would have done some of that substantiated um, 
evaluation, mm. weighing it up throughout the essay. My daughter did classical civilization when she was quite young, and she was very good at building in that kind of analysis mm. as she went. And she got a very high mark. She got an eight. Yeah. For, and as I say, she was 13 and dyslexic. So we were all quite staggered right. by that, really. But it, I think it was because she was very good at, at the end of each point. She would sort of say, but actually, I'm not sure that this is the best thing. I actually yeah. think that maybe this. But, and so she because kind of, she had a very chatty style that I think it helped because it showed yeah. that she was analysing as she went. But that, yeah, that's the exact thing. You know, you make a judgment. This is the point I'm talking about. Here's my evidence. Uh, here's a bit of analysis but on the other hand mm, <laughs> nevertheless mm. and then you go back but nevertheless depending on how important you think or significant you think that factor is that you know how important was the bad weather in helping the English defeat the Spanish Armada is it the key cause was it the thing that enabled all the other things all the other factors to actually be more successful and this is the that's the role of the historian because everybody will come up with a slightly different interpretation it, historians there is you know disagreement there is um because they look at different evidence or they have a different f emphasis and that's the beauty of history it's not clear cut the other thing i was going to ask which is quite a specific question is that when my son was doing his history he read a book a textbook thing by a history teacher that recommended something called the clever conclusion which is when you do all your pe's and then at the end you sort of say but actually what i think may have been a more important fact and you kind of bring in something new and different at the end but then i yes exactly you're pulling a face because then i heard somebody else a couple of years later saying actually that you should never bring in something no. new at the end ah so no. so he was no, wrong no, no. about that right okay so um... This is where you have to be incredibly careful. And I was going to talk about, you know, resources that you get on the internet and teachers who say, this is definitely the correct way. <laughs> the only, it, for the national exams, and I'm sure CIE and the international ones are the same, the only people you actually have to listen to about what they want are the exam boards. Mm. I've been to every exam training every single year until I stopped being uh, a full-time teacher. Um, and they absolutely said, even other companies that run courses and say, this is how Edexcel want you to do the exam. Mm. The only authoritative voice is the exam board and the exam produced resources, even the textbooks. So I've got all of these textbooks. They all say how to actually answer the questions that is not endorsed by the exam board. The but the problem thing... I find is that the specs, the exam board specs, are so hard to read. They're, yeah. you know, they're really dense, and and yeah. you have to yeah. wade through them, yeah. and they're yeah. not always accessible yeah, yeah. for a lot of no. home educators. No. no, so listen to the teachers, but you have to take everything with a pinch of salt. Even what I'm saying, the textbooks, the only bit the exam boards endorse is the content, the history bit. If they have a section on this is how you answer the exam questions, that bit is not endorsed. That, mm. As in, they're not giving it a stamp of approval because it's only what the exam boards have said on their training or in their documents that is valid and is authenticated. So there are strategies you can use, like my strategies I've just discussed when I'm talking about the exam questions. But again, as long as the student hits the mark, the assessment objectives to the level that they would want for that mark part of the mark scheme, they can get their grade. They can get the marks. See, for some subjects, what we always did was we would print off a past paper and then we would mark it together with the mark scheme mm -hmm. to make sure that we were yeah. hitting what the exam board wanted. But for things like history, I found it really difficult to mark. Right. So you do what I do. 
every exam board, some exam boards are better than others. And it does depend on how many students sit that topic nationwide as to how much time they put into resources for it. But every exam board, because of the changes in the GCSE brought in by Gove, have got examiner's reports. Uh, Edexcel, I know the best, and they're brilliant at putting in what a child actually wrote in the exam and then showing you why that child got the marks and having an examiner's comment on the bottom. So they produce the exam paper, a mark scheme and an examiner's report. And with oh, Edexcel, in that's interesting. Yeah, in the exam report, they will have scanned in a student's real answers written in the exam under exam conditions. And then they say, this is why the child got what they did. If they want to get top marks, they need to do this. And I found those brilliant for helping me to understand how it is you can actually achieve the marks. Now, obviously, they keep under lock and key the most recent exams. They're padlocked and only schools can get them, but anybody can access the ones that don't have the padlock on. You don't you don't even need to have a login. And that's how I, this is how I, we learn as teachers. You have to look at the exam report. You have to see what it is that they're saying. This is good. This is where the students are picking up the marks. This is what they need to work on. I feel like we're getting to the sort of nitty gritty bit now mm. because I'm thinking as if we assumed that we've done all of this, we've worked through the history yeah. curriculum, the syllabus, we we chose our exam board, we've thought about the keywords, we've we've used the specialist language, and now we're sort of two, three months before the exam. So what's what are your top tips for that kind of last minute, you know, the last few months before an exam? It shouldn't be the last few months. Throughout your course, however many years you're teaching it, you should be building in revision techniques, retrieval practice, exam practice, exposing them to these questions. You should be sitting exam um, papers in exam conditions and so that they get used to it. So that actually, and that all the revision materials should be made already. So for example, the student I'm teaching, who's at home educated student, she has already made for year 10 all her revision materials. She has a folder ready. She has the keywords ready. She's already sat a paper on Elizabeth. She's already sat a, two papers on Weimar Germany. So when she goes in in year 11, it's familiar to her. It's not unknown. It's not as scary. It's going to be scary. I hate exams. I almost fainted in my <laughs> A-levels. I, I, botched my, I botched my A-level history. I, I, I quite happily admit that. I, <laughs> I, I was so stressed. I almost fainted in the toilets. Um, oh. Yeah, so exams I, are I, rubbish, aren't they? Yeah, it's, and, and I feel it's our, frustrating. Our and and I have to say, the the current GCSEs are so hard on our kids. Are so hard. Why um, is that? Do you think because there's so many of them, or the changes that Gove brought in made them more <laughs> knowledge heavy, and mm. therefore the content in all of the GCSEs, maths, English, everything increased. But they were still mm. expected to take eleven or ten GCSEs to be perceived mm. as a success mm. um and and it made it harder they removed the coursework element which meant any child who my see myself and my sister who weren't great in, in exam conditions we panicked we had anxiety I even had that in my degree you know I thought I was having a heart attack and I was just stressed it actually does you know th that coursework element was something children who didn't 
thrive in the exam situation had something that they could excel at and think oh I've got some marks under the under my belt I'll be okay obviously as home educators we're very fortunate because we are able to choose how many GCSEs we do and I think it's Oxford and Cambridge I think wants seven I think the most that any university I've looked at wants is eight which is I think Imperial College it it depends what a child wants to do in the long term now if they're thinking they want to go to um, university and they have a, a clear sense of what they want to do like one of my friends knew from a wee nipper she wanted to be a GP so she knew that she had to go to university she went and looked at what the courses were so she worked backwards from that. I found history one of the heaviest subjects when it comes to workload. I think that's probably why I have approached the way I have with the home educated student I've got in terms of GCSE of doing it as we go along so that and for example the way I teach her is that I will our activity when I've done the teaching and learning we will then create a set of Cornell notes which is a revision document we will then create a mind map as part so I'm part of the actual active learning is actually producing some of the research revision materials Mm. that she will need when she comes to the real thing so I'm trying to reduce and spread that workload and I build in retrieval practice retrieval practice just means recalling factual information so although I'm teaching American West at the moment we've just started I will ask her questions about the German unit that we were doing when she was in year 10 or about the Elizabethan unit and that's just to keep if the more you have to dig in your memory to go retrieve those facts a bit like a me with a dog with a you know with with a stick go find the information <laughs> go find the information it transfers it from your short-term memory to your long-term memory and it puts in those connections in your synapses to get that bigger picture and it just the more you have to retrieve it the more it's sort of embedded if that makes sense it makes perfect sense it's actually very similar to habit forming isn't it the more often yeah. you do something the more the neurons fire together and and it knows yeah. that that's what you're wanting to do and that's yeah. why i'm terrible at exercise because <laughs> i can't <laughs> build the habit i was like today i will do an aerobic exercise and then you won't <laughs> there's something called habit stacking where you actually if you want to bring in a new habit you link it to an existing habit so for example if every single morning you clean your teeth then before you clean your teeth you should do like 10 sit-ups and that way it's much easier for our brain because it already Um, has a habit inbuilt and we just add one into it I like that okay Mm -hmm. I've learned something really new thank you (laughs) Yeah, but it, this it, is it. another thing that you just build up, though, don't you? You yeah, build up your yeah. skills. And I think it's very much the same with history. And I think actually and, and any that, subject, any subject, you've got to build absolutely. it and you've got to have those foundations. And the foundations are the ability with language, your ability to explain, being able to recall. So it's and it, 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 that's across all subjects. So it's, you know, you've got to build solid foundations. That's why key stage three is so important, because you're building the foundations. I was literally moving on to that because I have a huge objection to Key Stage 3 because I personally think that it's just when they changed so that children children used to be able to leave school at 14 and then they changed it so they everyone had to stay on to 16. And my theory is they, they added in Key Stage 3 just to sort of fill out the time because so much of Key Stage 3, in actual fact, so much of school actually is repeated again and again and again. You have these cycles of of subjects. So for example, if you were to take the water cycle as a classic example, um, it's taught in year one, it's taught in, you know, sort of early years primary, then it's taught again, then it's taught again in key stage two, then it's taught again in key stage three, but a little bit deeper, then it's taught again at GCSE. Mm. And it just, it feels like such a pointless waste of time. But I I suspect what you're going to say is that it allows the brain to form these connections by repeatedly going back into the same subject. 
and it and it's possibly looking at things slightly differently. So, for example, I talked about my school chose to do the bridging unit of the, the Roman Empire. And a lot of the children came to us and said, well, not all of them, because they all come from different primary schools, different feeder schools, saying, well, we've done this. I said, yeah. but not the way that I'm teaching it. So I'm using something you're familiar with and we're turning it on its head and we're looking at it from a different angle. And I used it to basically teach skills as well. So they had to do a presentation. They had to do the, uh, their first detailed essay and research skills. So I was using it to hone the history skills as well. What I did is that when I built, because I was head of humanities in charge of history, when I built my schemes of work, Key Stage 3 laid foundation blocks, but it was not a repeat of Key Stage 4, and it was not a repeat of what was done at A-level. Different topics, but the same skills, I'm guessing. Yeah, but also covering, but making sure, for example, when I did the Middle Ages, I slotted a lesson in there about crime and punishment. Mm-hmm. because I knew that it was coming up in a GCSE. So they had some familiarity with weird, weird words and things like, what's a hue and cry? No, it's not a 1980s or 1990s band. It's well, not it just is. that. <laughs> well, it is. It's not just that. Not just that, no. <laughs> not just that. Uh, what's a tithing? And so, uh, and you know, the, the, the trials by ordeal. So they had some familiarity So because then they have something to hang their knowledge on. And it's not completely new because you can get cognitive overload. You know, if everything's new, if everything's like, oh, I don't know where this fits into the bigger picture. So if you have even the briefest familiarity with it, they've got something to hang on to. And, oh, right, that goes that goes on that hook. Oh, OK, that that connects to that. And so, for example, in year eight, we did do the Tudors. We did do the Reformation. Uh, and we did Henry through to, you know, right through to the Renaissance and beyond and the Civil War and a, a little bit of Elizabeth. And we talked about the Spanish Armada. But when you do it at GCSE, you're coming at it from a slightly different angle, in more detail, and they're getting the bigger picture. It so, must be a fine line between exposing children to the same subject again yeah. and again so that they can hook their learning onto something and feel confident about it. it must be a fine line between that and them getting, frankly, very bored of the same yeah. thing again and again. Doing the contextual stuff, you're, you're giving them a flavour so they kind of understand Elizabethan England. It's not completely unknown. But Key Stage 4, the content will be different. Some will overlap and will have been repeated, but not all of it. So my very last question to you is, mm. I think most home educators have this thing where we really want our child to love the process of learning. So whether that's because they they choose to do it themselves because they're autonomously led or because they, they've they had a bad experience at school, so they really want their child to sort of embrace that kind of love of learning. Mm-hmm. And yet we also want our children to get exams, or, or at least a, a lot of us want our children to get qualifications, mm-hmm. or perhaps our child wants to get qualifications. So what would be your your biggest sort of one tip for allowing a child to to retain or or actually create a love of history while still being able to sit and examine it? Big question, sorry, at the end. <laughs> I think the biggest thing with history is still about stories and lead with stories. So, for example, um, you know, if you're doing the modern period and maybe you're doing World War One, lead with stories of people. Mm. and experiences and then broaden it out it's it's like whenever we wrote a scheme of work you have to have a hook you have to have something that's going to grab the children's attention so what will grab your child's attention what is it that they like you know I'm trying to focus um, a lot on female history go figure um with the, the student I was teaching a home home educated child in key stage um three I was like right well, you know women's history 
is something that we need to address and diversity within hi- mm. in history. So what what is it that your child's interested in and try to maybe bring it to life with a story, with a person or a particular event as a hook. And then it, then that's your sort of, you've zoomed in on that and then pull back, you know, like you've zoomed in a bit like a, you know, on Google Maps, now pull back to see the bigger picture and what connections mm. can you make? What can you learn from that person's experience in the, the wider picture? Was it? I think that's such good advice because my daughter's very political and when she was studying her AQA history, she was very interested in the Vietnam unit because of the political side. And I went into her room one day and she was playing a protest song that she had discovered from the Vietnam period. And it's oh, it's, it's interesting, perfect. isn't it? Yeah, yeah when yeah, you can they... when you can sort of build everything oh, around that interest. Yeah. I mean I was doing was King John really a bad king? Use Walt Disney, Robin Hood. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. in it where you have King John is portrayed as this sulky, stroppy, greedy character. And is that accurate when we look at the, the actual sources and, and mm. so forth and how it's changed? You know, like protest songs, brilliant. When I was doing post-Civil War in America and looking at emancipation and looking at the civil rights movement, Strange Fruit, fantastic mm. song. Mm. Mu- bring in music, bring in the voice of the past. Uh, it, it is really important. And they're great hooks. And I think that actually, I think that's a perfect thing to end on because I do think that 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 is the beauty of having a tutor, even though you obviously don't need one. But that is the nice thing about having a one-to-one tutor is you can mm. say to that tutor, look, my my daughter loves politics and music. Mm. And and then the tutor can, a decent tutor, right, can can sort of incorporate okay. that into the learning. Yeah, and, and I think you don't get that with online classes. But of course, you do get that if you self-study as well, because your child will, will sort of automatically find those roots. But mm. I think it is one of the bonuses of having a tutor. Yeah. So can you tell us, Lynn, where we can find you on social media? And do you have a website okay. and all that stuff? I do have a website. So it's a Weebly website. <laughs> and it's Weebly. Uh, Weebly. Uh, West London History Tutor. And uh, my email is West London History Tutor, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram as Lynn, L Y N, underscore history, underscore tutor. And my Facebook page is West London History Tutor. I'm actually an online tutor um, just because I, it, it works for me, it mm. works for the, the, for the children. And I just share all the resources via Google Docs, et cetera. So, yeah, and that that's me. Super. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. That has been such a deep dive into history. It's been really fascinating. Uh, well, I hope that the uh, home educating parents can, you know, pick up some of the top tips and you can say, oh, that works for us. Oh, that'll be a good idea. Oh, don't like that ditch. But, you know, it exactly. is, it's about marrying and bridging that gap between those who are homeschooling but still want to sit the standardised exams and those who just actually, I, I wanted de-school and and but still address history as an academic subject yeah and still love history and and still love history because it's not just the story historians do more than just tell the story story is the first route in but not exactly the whole story it's not the whole story but it's not where it's not where the journey ends yeah that's so true thank you so much lynn that's been wonderful thank you for having me it's been been a pleasure thank you Thank you so much for joining us for today's Home Education Matters podcast. See you at the next one. Have a lovely day.